Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak with leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Catherine Manning, an author and attorney who is an expert on trauma issues and a leading voice on empathy in the workplace. For more than a decade, Catherine served as a senior attorney advising the U.S. Department of Justice on its response to victims in such high-profile cases as the Boston Marathon bombing and the Pulse nightclub shootings. In 2019, she became the president of Blackbird, D.C., which advises organizations on how to respond with empathy to people in trauma and distress. She's a prolific writer, including her recent book, The Empathetic Workplace, and she hosts a podcast of the same name. I'm delighted to welcome Catherine to the Minor Consult to discuss the prevalence and impact of trauma in our society, her journey in support of victims and people who've experienced trauma, and what leaders can do to create an empathetic environment in their organizations. Catherine, welcome. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. So, Catherine, it's my understanding that your passion for easing the impact of personal trauma began when you were a hotline counselor in a domestic violence clinic. How did you become involved in this work, and how did this experience inspire you to devote your career to this field? You know, I actually came from a family history of domestic violence. I was very lucky. My mother had both the resources and the wherewithal to get out, and so I didn't grow up in a violent household. But those early experiences really motivated me when I got to college to start working on domestic violence issues. And it was some of those calls that motivated me to go to law school because I was seeing again and again that uh, victims were not getting the respect and treatment that they needed and deserved in the legal system. That's that's such a moving beginning. How do you find that your experiences uh, that you described growing up, how have they impacted the way you approached your legal education, your your involvement with the legal system as an attorney, and now your, your broader efforts with companies and other organizations uh, that want to learn how to approach the topic of empathy and how to embody that in the way the organizations are led and managed? You know, so I went to law school thinking I wanted to be a prosecutor. I thought, oh, it'll be like being a victim advocate, but with more power. But I learned pretty early on that I didn't like putting people in jail, which is, it turns out, pretty central to the mission of being a prosecutor. So I ended up, I went to a firm for a little while, and then, as you mentioned, ended up at the Justice Department for about 15 years. I was, I think, fortunate in the timing of when I came into DOJ. I started there two weeks before a, a new law passed that was really a, she, a sea change in terms of how victims were treated in the legal system. It gave them standing, a voice to argue against maybe what the prosecutor was seeking in the case. Um, and because I was the lawyer there who had this in my wheelhouse and, and a pretty empty desk at the time, I quickly became the department's expert. And it meant that I was the one consultant on just a, a wide array of cases, everything from huge fraud to terrorism, identity theft, uh, human trafficking, really the full panoply of victim cases that the department prosecuted. And a few things began to be clear to me over the time 
One was that people didn't need different things based on what they were a victim of. It wasn't like victims of identity theft needed wildly different things than a victim of terrorism needed. Everybody needed to feel heard and acknowledged. Everybody needed a voice in the proceedings. Everybody needed some support to get back on their feet again. And then over time, I began to realize it wasn't just the victims who needed those things. It was my colleagues, too. Sometimes because of issues that were work-related, prosecutors maybe who were um, experiencing secondary trauma because of the cases that they were working on, or I mean, even issues like uh, somebody who has an abusive boss, that can really take a toll on somebody. Um, And then, of course, all of the issues that just afflict us as humans, everything from physical illness to mental illness, divorce, loss of loved ones, and on and on. I began to realize that these skills I had gained in supporting crime victims had a much broader application than just the ways that we were supporting the victims in our cases. Um, And that's really when I started working on the book. Honestly, I think my motivation was me too, but not in a positive way, I hate to say. So me too, when that happened in 2018, I was on the one hand thrilled because these were issues I'd been thinking about and working on for so long. But on the other hand, I was frustrated by me too, because I felt like it put so much on survivors. Share your story. Everybody needs to hear your story. But without an understanding that when somebody shares their story of trauma with you, you have an obligation as the listener to be compassionate and supportive. So that's what motivated me to start writing the book and and eventually to go out on my own and do what I do now, which is training and consulting on building more trauma-informed workplaces. One of the things that, that you just mentioned, and, and it's, it's present throughout your writings uh, as well, is the importance of, of listening. And can you talk about how both as a senior advisor, advising attorney at the Justice Department and in your subsequent work, how that, you know, what, what is really engaged listening? How do you teach that to people? And how has that impacted the way you've inter- interacted with and begun building relationships and trust with the victims of some of these horrible, horrible crimes, such as the Pulse nightclub shooting, and then the case against Larry Nasser, who victimized so many young gymnasts. What, how, did, how does the process begin? And what, one theme I think you've stressed is, is the engagement with listening. And maybe you could begin with listening and then go from there. Sure. One of the things that I saw again and again at the Justice Department was You know, the mission of the Justice Department, right, is to do justice in the case, and often the prosecutor's goal is to get a conviction. But what I saw again and again in terms of what mattered to the victims was the way they were treated along the way. That even if you didn't get a conviction, sometimes you might not even be able to get a charge. But if they felt heard and acknowledged throughout the process, particularly by someone in a position of authority. You know, it's one thing, I think, to be listened to and believed by a family member or friend, but when you have somebody that you view as being in a position of authority who is listening to you and cares, that can really make a tremendous impact on healing and often seem to make a bigger difference than the outcome of the case. So that just taught me pretty early on that Listening is a pretty magical thing, Um, in particular, the ways that you listen to people who are experiencing trauma and distress. Now, there are some difficult things about it. One is it's hard to listen to a story of trauma. I mean, I've been doing this work for 
almost 30 years now. And in the last few months, I had someone disclose a story to me that made me feel like I'd just been punched in the stomach. It, it's very, very difficult sometimes to listen and stay present to somebody who's experiencing a lot of pain. And that can be even more difficult in the workplace because, you know, how do you be successful at work by being really good at problem solving, at reframing, at coming up, you know, very quickly with the solution to the problem. And for a lot of people, I think maybe even, especially the more senior you get at work, it becomes instinctive. So somebody comes to you with, I'm struggling, and your instant thought is, well, what do we do to fix this? For somebody in trauma, often the most important thing you can do is just be willing to sit there and listen with them, just hold that space for them. But that feels like not enough, you know, especially if this is maybe a team member of yours. I spoke recently with a chief technology officer at a big company, and he said one of his team members came to him and said, I need you to know that I'm in the midst of a severe depression, and in fact, I'm suicidal right now. And he said, I had no idea what to say. And my immediate thought was, this is my my employee. I'm supposed to fix things for him. And so his response was, well, have you tried exercise? Which for somebody who is suicidal can come across as very minimizing and blaming. Um, and the CTO said he knew as soon as he said it, that was the wrong thing to say. But for him, that was his instinct. I'm supposed to solve this. Sure. You know, one concept that's often talked in about in, in empathy and, it, and it's been debated and, and criticized is the concept that to really be empathetic, you need to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. And yet, can we actually really even contemplate doing that for these types of horrible trauma that you just described? So how would you, you dissect that, that that's rather simplistic statement? And and how would you reframe it um, in, in the work that you do with victims and in the work that you do with those who are interacting with victims? I'm so glad you brought that up. In the work I did with victims, the universally most despised phrase was, I know how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You never really know no. how somebody feels. Even if you have been through something very similar or even the exact same experience, I mean, two victims who are who survived the Pulse nightclub shooting are going to come away with very different reactions and experiences and remembrances of it. Um, so I think it is, as you say, overly simplistic to think you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes. You really can't do that. What I advise instead is to try to meet the person where they are and really pay attention to the person in front of you and what they need. That can be surprising on in, in all directions. So you might think this person has just been through something that would bring me to my knees and he seems to be fine and functioning, um, instead of approaching him with your own expectation of, you know, you must be really struggling right now. What can I do? I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. For him, that might feel off-putting and almost as if you are judging him for not being more upset. So instead, just try to meet the person where they are, pay a lot of attention to what it is that they seem to need from you in the moment, and be willing to ask, how are you? What can I do? Your years with the Justice Department focused on people who were victimized in criminal cases, but we also know, of course, that trauma isn't limited to those criminally involved cases. 
In fact, according to, according to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, most people experience a traumatic event in their lives, and many experience at least one event, traumatic event that could lead to PTSD or other uh, physical and emotional lasting consequences. Can you tell us more about this and what constitutes trauma and why is it so prevalent in our society? The definition of trauma that I use in my work is a very simple and practical one. I use a, it's a slimmed down version of the definition from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And the definition is that trauma is a psychological injury that affects performance. What I like about the SAMHSA definition in contrast to some others is it doesn't give you a list of life events and say, if you've experienced one of these life events, then you've experienced trauma. Because as we've just been talking about, people can have very different reactions to the same event. So instead, let's just not focus on <clears throat> what this person went through, does it count as trauma or not, but just is this person in need of some assistance? And that's really the other piece of it that affects performance. We're talking about the workplace here. I don't want managers to to turn into psychologists and be walking into, into their employees' offices and asking them about their childhoods. It's really, are you experiencing something that's affecting your ability to perform in the ways that you want and need to? And if so, let's get you a little bit of help. Maybe if we could go back to the example you mentioned just a moment ago of the, the manager, the technology officer um, who had it, one of their direct report employees come to them and say, uh, I want you to know I'm severely depressed. In fact, I'm suicidal. And as you pointed out, the, the person realized immediately that their response of, oh, have you tried exercise, was, uh, was completely inappropriate. What, what are the acceptable responses to, because that, by the way, I'm sure uh, is not a unique situation of, of an employee coming to their manager with, with a similar type of, of disclosure, a similar type of outreach for help because really that was a statement I think uh, uh, from the employee of of um, a statement first of profound trust that the employee would reveal that to to the employer uh, and a real reach out so what should that manager and as you worked with them what did you work with them on as to how to respond in similar situations Sure. Let me talk about <clears throat> responding to disclosures of trauma or distress in general first, and okay. then um, special circumstances involving suicide. So the my advice on responding to a disclosure of trauma or distress in the workplace is what I call the laser technique. So listen first, let them talk, don't interrupt, watch your body language, let them know you're interested and engaged in what they're saying. Then acknowledge that they have just shared something personal with you, something difficult. And acknowledgement is a statement that neither denies nor distracts from what they've said. A denial is something like, I'm sure it's all going to work out, or you probably misunderstood. Distraction is something like, you know, my sister went through the same thing. Let me tell you all about her now. <laughs> so instead, an acknowledgement is something that merely shows the person that you heard them. So thanks for sharing that. I'm really sorry for everything you're going through. That sounds hard. 
just a simple statement that acknowledges that you've heard them. From there, you can go on to share information with them. One of the things about people in trauma is everybody craves information. So if you have factual information about the incident, that's a great thing to share. Process information can be helpful as well, like this is where you file a complaint. Um, this is how decisions are being made. Then you empower with resources. Did you know we have mental health resources here at our organization and here's how to access them. And then the final step is return. So um, it's listen, acknowledge, share, empower, return. Return is both literally returning to the person to check in on them later, and it's also importantly a return to yourself, an acknowledgement that supporting others takes a toll on us as well. Now, all of that would work in the um, situation described, but where someone has disclosed that they are considering self-harm, um, my best advice on that is it's the hardest thing, but to get comfortable asking the question. So somebody says to you something like, I'm so overwhelmed, I think uh, sometimes about just ending it all. Um, you have to be willing, you have to be brave enough to ask the question, is that something you've thought about? Have you ever considered hurting yourself? Um, and then if the answer is yes, um, and it seems like this is something where they are a risk to themselves, then your goal is to get them onto the experts as quickly as possible. You wanna do that in a way that doesn't make them feel like a hot potato, like you're just gonna throw them out. So instead something like, um, you know, you're going through so much right now. I'm so sorry that you're carrying so much. I don't want you to have to go through this alone. You know, we have some phenomenal experts. There are people here in our organization who are really well-versed in this. Um, I don't know if you are interested in going to them. There's also 988, our national uh, mental health crisis line. It's available for free by phone or text 24 hours a day. What would help you right now? I think that's going to be very helpful to the listeners uh, of this podcast to hear that. And, of course, they can follow up by, by reading what you've written about laser and, 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 and other related topics. Uh, let's talk about Blackbird D.C. Um, so Blackbird D.C. trains leaders in supporting people who've experienced trauma and in creating an empathetic workplace. With the pandemic, George Floyd's murder, and the distressing world events, how has the level of anxiety and types of stresses for workers, how have these changed over the past few years? And, and has it prompted you to make changes to your approach uh, because of this convergence of so many different stresses uh, in our broader society and locally as well? I sometimes say it's like trauma is the air we're breathing here in the 2020s, <laughs> you know, yes. really starting with COVID. And as you said, on to George Floyd, uh, um, hate crimes are at the highest level in 12 years, according to FBI data. We've had Uvalde and other mass shootings, and it's just on and on and on. And when you look at the statistics, the levels of um, exhaustion, burnout, anger are higher now than ever before. Um it is, it's difficult, you know, when I think back to 2020, when, when we first heard about COVID, and I remember, I mean, when I got the notice that our kids were going to be home from school for two weeks and thinking, how am I going to survive two weeks at home with the kids, right? And then it's like the, the, the finish line just kept getting moved further and further and further. And yeah, I do get this sense that people are just so exhausted by it. It's thing after thing after thing. It's just relentless. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing right now is this just sense of exhaustion. Um, 
I think, I mean, I guess maybe a potential upside of that in terms of workplaces is issues of trauma at work have become impossible to ignore. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've always had trauma at work. We've always worked with victims of domestic violence, people struggling with alcoholism and addiction and on and on. But right now it is so broad and so deep that employers are recognizing this is something that we have to address. And one of the um, amazing things is this younger generation that's coming up, the younger workers are really demanding it. Um, more attention to mental health, boundary setting. And it's been wonderful for me to see so many leaders that are really stepping up in response to that, who are prioritizing, um, and not just in a kind of band-aid way, like, oh, we're all going to take a mental health day, but really trying to think through what are the processes we have in place, what are the systems we have in place to make sure that our workers feel supported all the time. What have you seen organizations do well in supporting their employees, and what have they needed the most help with? You know, I think there is always a tendency in terms of what do they need help with. There's always a tendency to want the quick fix. You know, if we if we just um, give people an app or we, you know, farm out our mental health services, then we'll be able to solve this issue. I think there is a really good place for those kinds of supports and you want people to have um, some place to go when they need some additional assistance. But I also think it's essential that everybody learn what I think of as like the mental health first aid. You know, you're the one on the scene, you're the one who hears that disclosure, and you have the skills to navigate that in a way that doesn't make it worse and hopefully makes it better, helps the person feel comfortable going to get their um, additional support that they need. Um, some of the things I've seen be incredibly effective are the leaders who are able to model vulnerability who are able to not just say, do you know that we have mental health services? You can get, you know, 10 sessions for free and it's um, confidential and I highly recommend it. But instead to say, did you know we have mental health services? They're free, they're effective, you can get 10 sessions and they really helped me when I needed it. Just adding that mm -hmm. additional sentence really makes it so much more possible for other people to do that as well. And that's in terms of accessing therapy and other mental health services. It's also in terms of boundary setting, um, all the things that we do. I like to say uh, we should all be practicing noisy self-care. So not just we're good at taking care of ourselves, but we're doing it out loud. So other people feel comfortable doing it too. Maybe you could describe, you've worked with a lot of organizations. What are some of the characteristics of the organizations where you feel like your training and your interaction with managers and others has had the most impact? And maybe what are the characteristics of organizations where after being involved with them, you sort of scratched your head and said, I'm not sure this is going to move the dial for this organization? <laughs> you know, to me, the key is always the leaders. Um, I think it is very difficult to make any kind of organizational change if the leadership is not 100% on board. So just as an example, one of the clients that I work with pretty closely is a company called Ketchum. They're a communications company. And we worked first with the CEO, um, who uh, Jim Joseph, spent many hours talking to him about why this matters, why it was important. Jim then went out and spent, gosh, probably 
I don't even know, 50 hours talking with different leaders, his top leadership team, answering all their questions is being trauma informed in my wheelhouse. Is this even appropriate for me to be doing at work? Is this going to interfere with my work? Just he, because he understood it so deeply, he was able to go out and make the case to his whole top leadership team. And then we did a training for them. I did about five hours on being trauma informed. Um, in general. And then another woman, Dawn Shedrick, came in and did an additional three hours on um, trauma-informed responses to historically marginalized groups. Um, and then it was letting the leaders kind of disseminate it to their teams. So you see it's like kind of top-down is really what I think made the difference there. And then ultimately the entire company received training and being trauma-informed through an online on-demand training where the leaders had already gotten enough of an expertise themselves to be able to lead discussions on these topics. That's it. Yeah, it's been pretty wonderful to see. But yes, I do think it's it's essential to start at the top and sure. the leaders really need to be on board for it to be effective. Of course, hybrid and remote models of work have added complexities and complications for creating an empathetic workplace. How can leaders build and maintain these connections when they're not in close physical proximity? And has your approach changed uh, in the COVID and post-COVID era where we're still navigating some in person, some hybrid, and uh, and it seems to be constantly changing what the fraction is uh, between being in person and being remote. Yeah, it's just been an ongoing source of stress and uncertainty right. and anxiety for a lot of different teams. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I remember speaking with one manager who said, you know, when we were in person, I could walk into a team you know, a staff meeting and say something's going on with Beth. Before anybody said a word, I could just feel it. Something's going on with her. And then I would know I could follow up with her after the meeting, have a little conversation, maybe go take her to coffee. Really hard to do that when you're not in person. So I think it does require managers to be more thoughtful and proactive. Um, I, I like to say we all have to get good at mastering the art of the quick check-in. So, um, I think people should have a list. You know, there's been studies that show that psychological safety is highest on teams where managers check in with their direct reports at least once a week. So I think managers should be aiming for that. And the check-in is not tell me the status of your work. It's how are you? How are things going? Um, I have a friend who is a, a high up manager, a very stressful job, but she says with her direct reports, if she's doing a 30 minute weekly check in, 25 minutes of it might be on all the non work stuff. Because she said, if we can get through that, we can handle the work stuff in five minutes. It's all the stuff that gets in the way of it that is really what you're trying to support them around. So when managers can do that, can get better at those check-ins, whether it's, you know, over a Zoom or a phone call, um, and making sure that they're actually following up and hearing what the people are saying, I think that can go a long way. There are also tremendous benefits to doing things on Zoom. It allows a manager, for instance, if you're on that same, you know, staff meeting and you see now Beth is off camera and she's usually not, or she's right. kind of quiet. You can send her a little direct message right there in the meeting right. without interrupting everybody else. Yes. <laughs> so there are some benefits too. For those of us in healthcare, the nature of our work, unfortunately, sometimes lends itself to traumatic experiences leading to burnout and distress. 
What are ways that organizations with this type of work can best support their employees, and how can employees protect themselves from the effects of trauma experienced as a part of their jobs? So in terms of first, I guess, how do you protect yourself um, in those moments? I think, um, you know, my best advice, I have a uh, a few tools that I've developed over the years when you're working with people in trauma. Um, one thing to know, I think, first is that feelings can be contagious. So when I'm working with somebody in trauma, I, I catch a little bit of that feeling. Um, it's called secondary trauma. And so I can experience a little bit. If you imagine you are having a, a fine day at work and somebody comes rushing into your office and he's breathing really fast and his hands are shaking and he's speaking really loud and fast, your heart rate might go up a little bit, even if you're not, you know, you were having a fine day, you haven't even heard what's going on with him, right? It's, it can be contagious. So that can certainly happen um, on the job, particularly in healthcare. A few things to help with that one is always taking a deep breath, deep, slow breath in through the nose, out through the mouth, increases your brain function, and it calms your nervous system. So that's a great place to start. Another one is to name your feeling. There's research that shows that just putting a name to your feeling helps you to feel more in control of it. So you feel your heart rate starting to increase. Mm -hmm. Just put a name to it. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling sad. Putting a name on it can help you feel more in control. You can remember that in the moment as name it to tame it. Um, another great one is engage your senses. So um, put your hand on the desk in front of you. Does it feel smooth or rough? Notice the smell of coffee in the next room. Look around you and count out three blue things that you see. Just Grounding yourself in the present moment can help protect you from that impact of secondary trauma. Um, I also advise everybody on earth, but in particular, I would say healthcare workers right now to have some sort of a daily reset, something you do every day that's just about feeding your mental health. You know, think about it, about it as mental health hygiene. So maybe for you, it's exercise or a prayer before bed or meditating for a minute at lunch. Um, just have something that you do every day just to feed you. And then finally, get better at leaning on others as well. You know, we can't get through this alone. Reach out to others for help when you need it. And then in terms of leaders, what leaders can do to help build an environment that is more supportive of people who are um, supporting others in trauma, I always think that there's three pillars of a trauma-informed leader. So one is creating the environment where people feel heard. Are people allowed to talk about what they're experiencing? Are you checking in with them? Are you acknowledging what you're hearing? Um, second is support. Sometimes there are tangible supports people need, flexible leave, right. you know, all kinds of things. What are the tangible supports we're offering? And then the third is trust. Do people believe you when you say things? Do you follow through on your promises? Um, in this same vein, are, are the same rules applicable for everybody? Because we can't call ourselves trauma-informed if we ourselves are creating more trauma by the things that we are doing and not doing. Um, you know, I've heard this saying that a, a workplace culture is defined by the most toxic behavior that is tolerated. Mm. Part of being a trauma-informed leader has to be your willingness to take action to enforce the values of this workplace. 
Well, Catherine, this this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I want to end with two questions that I ask all my guests. And the first of these you've already discussed and touched on, but, but maybe uh, maybe you'll have some new perspectives in the way I ask the question. And that is, what do you think are the most important qualities for a leader today? I think there's uh, really two I would call out. One is curiosity, which I think is the core of empathy, a genuine desire to understand what's going on with the people around you. And then the other I would say is courage, willingness to take action, even when it's hard, even when you aren't sure of the answer. You want to avoid what I've heard referred to as the fear of finding out. Like if I don't know that this is happening, I don't have to address it. We have to be brave enough to look at even difficult things that we aren't sure how to solve. And my second question is, what gives you hope for the future? It has been the great privilege of my life to be able to work with victims and others in trauma for most of my career. And one of the real benefits of that is that I've been able to see that the person in front of you right now is not who they're going to be in six months or six years or 16 years. People can come out of just horrifying, unimaginable events and do such incredible things that benefit all of us. You know, I've seen survivors go on and pass laws, start foundations, create incredible works of art. I am constantly amazed and inspired by the the survivors that I have the privilege to work with. Well, Catherine, thank you so very much for joining me today. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Catherine Manning, expert on trauma issues and how to foster empathy in the workplace. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listened. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.